0: Lovely to see you all this morning. Uh, we're, yeah, we're doing slightly different order this morning because we've got baptisms. And also, I'm, uh, after I finish speaking, I'm going down to 502. For those of you who are new here, we have two congregations, one here and one down on Ashy Road. So I'm speaking at both this morning, so I will be nipping out, which means, sadly, I'll be missing the baptisms, which is a shame. But I can watch them on the uh, video later. Sorry, Carlos. Uh, tomorrow I'm off to Athens for the week. We've got a, a gathering of church leaders uh, from our advanced family churches, so going to be away at that. There's going to be more information about that in the mailer this coming Tuesday, and also some updates about my sabbatical and that. And we are currently looking at the letter of Paul to Titus. Titus is on Crete, which isn't too far from Athens. So hopefully you have a Bible in sight of you. Uh, this is on page 1198. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter two today. And uh, we're working through this uh, letter to Titus, who's a friend of Paul and he's been left Sent to Crete with a mission to put elders, to put leaders in place in the churches, in the towns in Crete, so that the churches can be properly cared for and led, and that family values can be laid down in the churches. And uh, I did actually prepare some slides this morning, but I forgot to upload them. So <laughs> it would be helpful if you had a Bible so you can see what we're looking at. So we're going to be working through Titus chapter 2, <laughs> honestly, so hopeless. Do the work and then forget I've done the work. Right. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says to Titus, You must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. There are churches which are being established on the island of Crete, and they are not meant to be Cretan. They're meant to be witnesses to Christ. And so Titus is on Crete, and he is in Crete to teach truth that counters the false teaching which is emerging he's to teach things that line up with the truth and he's to teach others so that they can themselves then teach others what is true and uh, what uh, is being looked for in these churches in crete is that there would be clear thinking there that those who are part of the churches would understand the truth and understanding that would lead to behavior which is godly so The the aim of Titus' ministry is that people in the churches wouldn't be in a position where they're confronted with the issues of everyday life and think, I don't know what to think, but they would have a clarity of thinking because they've been taught the truth. And that those who are members of the church wouldn't just go with the flow of how life in Crete generally is, but they would reflect and honour the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, as we work through this passage, there are things here which probably for many of us, will actually feel quite jarring. As you read Titus 2, it feels a very socially conservative passage. And so there might be things which are here which are jarring, especially if you're new to church, there might be things which feel quite jarring to you. I think a lot of that is because actually our culture has become increasingly Cretan. And, um, uh, and Cretan culture at this time was, was morally all over the place. And so what is looking to be established in the churches is, is quite a different way of life. And for us living in a much more Cretan kind of, kind of culture, we can push back against what is being taught here because it can feel very socially conservative. So just be alert to that and uh, let's try and have open ears to hear what scripture is saying to us and try and have clear thinking ourselves about what is being taught here. And what Paul does is give Titus a different groups of people in the church who are to be taught and some different instructions for different groups. And he starts with the older men. Verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate or sober-minded, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Now, Titus was himself probably a younger man, but he had a father-like role in the churches because he is there to help appoint elders to lead and care for the churches. And those men who are going to be appointed as elders were then themselves to serve as spiritual fathers in the churches. But here the instruction is to teach all the older men, generally the older men, to be father figures, to be mature, to be examples and exemplars of what Christian faith is, to be pillars in the church, to be worthy of respect. Now I think most men want to be respected and certainly as you get older there can be a sense I ought to be respected but Paul says to Titus, teach the older men to behave in a way which means they are worthy of respect. Respect is something which actually has to be earned that it's not something you just are owed because of who you are, but it has to be earned in a sense. It has to be demonstrated that you are worthy of respect. And uh, Paul's urging to Titus to teach these older men to be worthy of respect. Now, we're not told what the age category is, it just says older men. He doesn't give a cutoff of this age is older and this is younger. Probably when we're thinking about older men, and this might shock some of you who are getting there, probably anybody over 45 would come into this category. <laughs> of older men. It's the middle-aged and up. So those of you in your 40s and still think, I'm a young man. No, in this, you're older. Just <laughs> suck it up. That's life. That's the reality. Of course, looking around this room, we, one of the beautiful things about this congregation is that we have some older men who are not just in their 40s, but those who are older, 70s, 80s, who are just worthy of respect. Just looking around, there's a whole bunch of you, older guys, you've endured. You've... Been faithful, you are worthy of respect, you're men that we love, you are pillars in the church. Uh, but for those who are perhaps more in the middle years, I think it's a, it's a dangerous age. That sort of 45 upwards age can be dangerous. I think the, the, the 45s to 55, 60, the people my age, <laughs> it's a dangerous age. It's, it's easy to get to that stage of life, it's easy to become disappointed. It's easy to become cynical. It's easy to become lazy. The reality is, you get to your early 50s, mid 50s, and life is moving on, and the younger guys are starting to move past, and you've got as far in work as you're ever going to get in work, and there's all kinds of pressures upon you in those middle years. You've got still kids who are dependent on you, and increasingly parents who might be dependent upon you, and it can feel there's all kinds of pressures, and it's very easy to become disappointed, cynical, and lazy, to stop believing that our highest joy is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There can be a sense that time is rapidly running past, and all the regrets of the things you didn't achieve when you were in your 20s and 30s didn't happen, and though you might still think that... If a talent scout from the Cherries came and saw you kicking the ball around in the park, they'd still want you to, they'd still want to sign you up. The reality is, you missed your chance, it's never going to happen. Time has gone. And there can be that sense of of time passing and regret. I think also it's an age when we very easily lean into the God of comfort where, ah, done it, I've worked hard, it's just time to sit back and take life easy and Give in to the God of comfort. And so I think a key word here in, in instructions to the older men is endurance. They're to be sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Endurance. Keep on going. So to those of you older guys who have endured, there's Derek, Ken, others of you older guys who have endured, who are pillars, models amongst us, well done. And for those of us who are older men but not quite at that stage yet, endure. Keep going. The next section of teaching is to the women, verse 3. Likewise, teach the old women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. The uh, issues of belief and behavior that affect older men can also affect, of course, older women. And what Paul is saying here is, older women... uh, Oh, i died. I'm back. Suddenly got so old I died. (laughs) (laughs) Older Older women, don't just sit back, glass in hand. But help and invest in the younger women. So it's really interesting how Paul puts this, because so much of the emphasis on this letter is what Titus is to teach people. But here he's expressly says, Titus, teach the old women, so that they can teach the younger women. There's this responsibility of teaching which the old women are to have. Now I remember when Grace and I were first married, how we were incredibly helped by a couple who uh, were, I guess, in that stage, probably only in their forties or about that kind of stage of life but they had teenage kids they were that stage beyond us and often on a Sunday afternoon we just end up after church walking around to their house spending time with them hanging out with them with Steve and Anne and we 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 learned so much from them just by being with them and observing them teaching us about what it was to be married this was before we had kids or anything And I, actually um, uh, we Long time since we've lived in the same town and lost touch a bit, but I just messaged Steve this morning. and said, we're so grateful for the way that you invested in us when we were first married. And there's that investment that the older can give to the younger to help them. And I think perhaps the reason why young mums, and it seems to be that kind of age group which has been uh, described here, particularly highlighted, is that being a young mum, working out marriage, working out what it is to be a young mum, can be hard. And if you've been through that, if you've been a young mum, you can help other young mums to go through that as well. I think the reality is for young mums especially, it's easy to get frustrated. It's easy to get irritable. It can feel like you're always giving things up. And even in an age of shared parenting and men meanting to be stepping up and doing more of their fair share. The reality is that you probably feel, if you're a young mum, you feel it's always you giving the stuff up, that in the end, the housework does seem to depend more upon you than it does on him. In the end, the looking after kids, it does seem to always default to you, that the organising of stuff seems to always be on your plate, that when it comes to arranging babysitters, it seems to be you having to do it. If, Your child starts screaming in a Sunday morning. and has to be taken out of the service. It's you who has to do that. And you're missing stuff again. And there can be this real sense of, I'm always missing out because I'm a young mum. And yes, you are. That is the reality of being a young mum. And you can think it's not fair. And no, it's not. But it's just the reality of being a young mum. And it can be hard. And so to have older women who've been through that and can help you is a massively important thing. And I think what's... Paul says this group needs to be taught is also significant, says teach the young mums to be self-controlled, to be kind, be kind. I think when you're feeling frayed by family life, when it's just hard work with the kids and you feel stretched on every dimension, being, kindness tends to go and so this is, this instruction to teach them to be kind is important Older women can help teach the younger women how to be kind. It's a beautiful thing to do. As young, then an instruction to the young men, verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Now, In teaching the older men and the women there are various instructions that Paul gives Titus to teach them. When it comes to the young men, there's just one instruction. Teach the young men to be self-controlled. All the young men can cope with is one simple instruction. (laughs) The women and the older guys can cope with a bit more. The young men can only cope with one. Be self-controlled. And again, in terms of age categories, well, let's say anybody under the age of 45. You're a young man be self-controlled, that's the instruction, be clear about this. But that's not quite it, because then Paul gives Titus instructions about what Titus is meant to do, and Titus himself is probably one of these young men, and so what Titus is meant to do is to model to the other young men, not just self-control, but these other things as well. Titus is meant to model reliable maturity, he's meant to take responsibility and model that to the other young men in the church, and says the instruction is, do this so that others have nothing bad to say about us. Titus, you and the other young men behave in a way which means that people have nothing bad to say about us. The whole congregation. Don't let us down. Young guys, don't let us down. Be self-controlled. Be mature. Be reliable. Act in a way which doesn't dishonor us. That's the instruction to you younger guys. Liam and Perry getting baptised today. Where are Liam and Perry? Stick up your hands. Liam Perry over there. Brilliant. Two young men getting baptised, making a clear statement of their belief. Thinking clearly about that. Don't let us down. (laughs) Be self-controlled. It's instruction to you. And then here's a really tricky one. Slaves, verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, this is probably the instruction which needs the most explanation, because in our mindset, we think, surely the instruction should be, slaves, rebel against your masters. That's what we would naturally think. And what we have to do is try and push ourselves back into the context of the ancient world, which is difficult for us, always difficult for us, but probably particularly difficult in this area because when we think slavery, we think our total worldview is about 18th century transatlantic slavery. And we need to kind of move back beyond that in history to the ancient world. And the reality is that in the ancient world, slavery was ubiquitous. There were... Huge numbers of slaves in the Roman Empire. Different estimates, but anything between 10 and 40% of the whole population were slaves in the Roman world. And, of course, that could be horrific, but then much of ancient life generally was horrific. Think back to this period of history, all the just the normal stuff of life, no medicine, no <laughs> anesthetics, no antibiotics, torture routinely used as a method of interrogation. You got arrested, you got questioned, you were tortured, that was just routine. The the whole of the ancient world was horrific. You wouldn't want to live in the ancient world. And this was a world where slavery was ubiquitous. And uh, probably actually the way for us to think about this instruction is the context of the instruction is much more in terms of what we would think of as employee and employer. That's really the kind of context which is being described here. And and, and what is being encouraged, what is being urged of employees, let's put it that way, is don't be an employee who tries to undermine your employer. As a Christian, we need to have clear thinking that we want to be a witness in the workplace. Look what he says. Slaves, make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. In the workplace, if you are an employee, make the teaching about God our Savior attractive attractive by the way that you conduct yourself, by not being an employee who seeks to undermine your employer, but one who has integrity about your work. Now, these different groups, these instructions, the the instruction really is be clear thinking, have clarity about what it is you believe, and then let your behavior mirror your belief. Let there be a consistency there. This needs to be a, a family value which is being laid down in these churches, and it's a family value that we have, that we have clear thinking about what we believe and that, what that means for our behavior. But where this goes next is, is how we're to do this, how we're to do it. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The, The theme of Self-control in many ways holds the letter to Titus together. It's like a, like a drumbeat throughout the letter. In, in chapter 1, verse 8, it says elders need to be self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 2, older men be self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 5, women be self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 6, young men be self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 12, everybody, all of you be self-controlled. Self-control is actually a really important theme, not just in Titus, it's particularly evident there, but, but throughout the Bible. We see that self-control is a principle for making life work. In the book of Proverbs, we're told, better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. And like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. If you you have self-control, it enables you to make life work. If you lack self-control, life doesn't tend to work out quite so well. Self-control also somehow is part of the whole package of the gospel. In in Acts 24, we read about the Apostle Paul being on trial before the Roman governor, Felix. And it says that Paul talked to Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, it's always intrigued me because so Paul, the great apostle, was talking to a Roman governor who doesn't know God. If you're describing the gospel, you can understand talking about righteousness, being made right with God. The way to be made right with God is through Christ. That makes sense. And then the final judgment that God will call all people to account, you can understand that. But he talks about righteousness and judgment, but then in between those things, he talks about self-control. It's not the normal first point of gospel witness that we turn to, but it's somehow part of the package that coming to Christ involves the transformation in us so that we learn what it is to be self-controlled. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As the Holy Spirit is at work in us, self-control is a fruit that is meant to be produced. And self-control is it's a characteristic of the Christian life. We see that here in Titus and the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter 1 verse 5, says the same thing. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. So self-control is an an important thing. And a a lack of self-control undermines all the good stuff. Lack of self-control undermines health. And it does that in a whole number of different ways, very practical ways. A lack of self-control undermines our personal, physical health. If we live in a way which lacks self-control in terms of diet or exercise or other things. That's bad for our personal physical health. And a lack of self-control can be ruinous to financial health. If you don't have financial self-control, all kinds of problems can result. And a lack of self-control actually undermines community health, because if there's a lack of self-control amongst multiple individuals, that leads to all the, or so many of the social problems that we see in our society. The whole community is weakened by a lack of self-control. So a lack of self-control costs The thing is that some people naturally find self-control easier than others. But we we all have areas where we find self-control difficult. We all have our areas of weakness. And also, it's very easy for us to be judgmental about others who are not self-controlled in the areas which we find it easy to be self-controlled in. Uh, Last week, I was working at home in my desk downstairs, and I was aware of one of my daughters going into the shower. Now, when I go into the shower... It works like this. I go into the shower. I don't turn the water on before I get in to let it warm up because the shower should be cold when you first get into it. That's part of self-control. And it it saves on the bills. So I get into the shower, turn the shower on. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000. Turn the water off. Okay, I'm wet. Now it's soap. Then it's turned the water back on 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000, 9,000. Don't forget between the toes, 11,000, 12,000. Turn the water off. Less than 30 seconds, it's done. And the heating has barely come on. I'm quids in because of self control. But I was down at my desk working and I was aware of my daughter in the shower and the water was flowing. And it was flowing and it was flowing, and it was flowing, and it was flowing, and it was flowing, and I'm getting there more and more tense, and, I, and, and part of, and it wasn't the daughter who was here this morning, so, it was another, another one of the daughter's who was guilty. Uh, but for, for me, part of me having to get self-control is not to fly up the stairs yelling and shouting, TURN THE WATER OFF! Who's paying for this thing? So, the whole thing's an exercise in self control. Whether it's short showers or long showers, it's all about self control. The the thing we see here, though, is that self control isn't just about us and what we're naturally good at being self controlled at or naturally lacking self control in. Actually, it's a work of God's grace. Look what it says, verse 11 The grace of God, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. It's God's grace that teaches us self-control. It's God's, another way that, that phrase can be translated is God's grace trains us in self-control. So Titus and the elders are to teach the church and old women are to teach younger women But we're also to be taught, we're to be trained directly by the Lord. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, and that's a fruit that should be increasingly evident in us as we become increasingly dependent upon the amazing grace of God. Part of of the salvation offered us by God, by God's grace, is self-control, and that means as. It says here, it means freedom from the demands and appetites of the world. The freedom to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Being a Christian means that we are empowered to live differently. That's what it means. When my daughter Susie got married three weeks ago and had the bridal party, lots of her friends around. One of her friends who just became a Christian in the last couple of years, we were talking about other friends and that kind of group and peers and some of the stuff they're up to. And she, she said, I don't think she almost didn't say it for, any, for us to hear. I just heard her say it almost to herself. Thank you, Jesus. I've been rescued from that. I've been rescued from that. And that's what salvation is. It's, that's what Jesus does. He rescues us from ungodliness and worldliness. Which, yeah, might be fun at times and might look attractive and all the rest, but in the end doesn't do us good. He rescues us from that. He, by his grace, enables us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And so the Apostle Paul urges his friend Titus. Titus teach these Christians to be Christians, not just Cretans. And the instruction is the same to us as well here. Be Christians, not just BCPians. Jesus... Jesus wants a pure people. What it says, verse 14, he gave himself, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. He gave himself for us so that we might be a pure people. Let's be clear thinking about that. And he did this so that we would be his very own. His very own. Jesus doesn't want, us, doesn't want to share us with the, with the world. He doesn't want us to be compromised. He wants his bride, his people, his beloved, his church, to be clear thinking about this. Who we are, our sense of identity, who are we? That we're those who belong to Christ, his chosen, precious people, redeemed by him, for him. Christ's very own who are eager to do what is good, enthusiastic about doing what is good. Knowing what Christ has done for us propels us into action. And this is a response to God's grace. This is so key. Self-control, doing good, those are not things which we are meant to just generate by our own self-discipline. No, they are meant to be a response to God's grace. God's grace, unmerited favor, free gift, his love poured out on us, undeserved, unasked for, unlooked for, unmerited, amazingly given by him. The response to that grace, the response to that grace, is the ability to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to what is good. To say, thank you, Lord. You've rescued me from all of that. And in response, I want to give you Of this. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for us. I pray, Lord God, firstly, for those here who haven't yet experienced your love. I pray, Jesus, that even being here amongst us this morning, they might see something of what it is to receive the amazing love of Christ Jesus. And all for those of us who are part of this already, part of this family, I ask that there would be a clear thinking amongst us. I pray our thinking wouldn't be muddied or muddled or confused. but We'd have a clarity about who we are as your precious people, those you've redeemed, those you've chosen as your very own. I pray there'd be that clarity amongst us. I pray that You'd deliver us from compromise. Lord, I pray whatever age or stage of life we are, whether we're older or younger, male or female, married, single, whatever it is, that, Lord, we would live in a way that our behavior would reflect our belief, that the things we do would reflect the grace that has been poured into our lives. And so, Jesus, if there's things here this morning which we need to get clear, if there's things we need to confess, repent of, bring before you, I pray in your mercy you'd help us in that and we would again know a fresh outpouring of your wonderful grace on us. Lord we thank you so much for Liam and Perry this morning making this declaration of who they are as young men and we pray for them that they, as they go through the waters of baptism there would be a, a, a fresher outpouring of your grace into their lives and I pray Lord that they would witness in the way that they live to the things they believe and confess. There would be an integrity and a maturity about them which far exceeds their years because of what God is doing in them. Lord Jesus, may that be true of each one of us in this place, I pray. In your name I ask it. Amen.